0: This is London Calling. This is London Calling. Hello, everyone. James Cook here, author of Memory Songs, a personal journey into the music that shaped the 90s. Recording this in London town during the lockdown. Day three, is it? I don't know. Strange days indeed. Indeed. I want to say a bit about the Deep Dive podcast. Um, I was the first guest, I believe. So thank you, Steve, for inviting me. It was a blast um, talking to you. Uh, You managed to unearth some memories about songs even I didn't know I had. It's a great podcast with a huge variety of music covered. So there's something for everyone. Uh, So why not check out their back catalogue on Spotify? I'm hoping to do another deep dive soon. Uh, But for now, I'm going to put on some tomato soup, settle down with episode 23, The Modern Lovers. Um, I'll see you on the other side. Over and out.
1: Hey, everybody. We hope you're all doing well, or at least coping in these crazy times. They've impacted everyone in different ways, and as we try to put some new interviews together, we've also had to improvise. I guess that's what good musicians and perhaps podcasters do. So we thought we'd get a little more personal in this episode and take a look back and then perhaps a look forward. I'm your host, Steve J, and I'll tell you a little bit about myself and what All Music Books and the Deep Dive podcast is all about, what we hope to accomplish, and how this whole fun, crazy thing got started. I may even get my man Steve Folsom behind the glass to kick in some commentary and questions.
2: Oh man, what if I freeze when the record light comes on? Concentrate, concentrate, come on find some inspiration with my waxed up hair and my pointy shoes playing at the talent show what is steven droning on about now
1: we've got got some fun recorded bits we'll throw in there to keep you on your feet so let's go any thoughts mr folsom
2: sure so to start why don't you fill us all in on your background and when and why you started all music books
1: Uh, yes that's um, a perfect place to start And it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I spent many, many years working as a creative director in the music business. Essentially, that means I got to design album covers for a living. I know, tough job. And I had the pleasure of working at two of the greatest independent labels in the world, in Ryko Disc and Rounder Records here in the Boston area. I worked with some amazing artists at both labels, Bob Mould and Morphine, Alejandro Escovedo, and so many others at Ryko Disc. They also changed the reissue game with the back catalogs of Frank Zappa, David Bowie, and Elvis Costello. It was an amazing place to work, and so many creative people. They were all music lovers, of course, and um, I am friends with most of them to this day. Uh, over at Rounder Records, I designed a bunch of covers as well. I uh, worked with Allison Krauss and Union Station, and I did the cover for her record with Robert Plant. I met him once, and he was one of the funniest down-home rock stars I've ever met. I worked with Branford Marsalis a lot, and I'm still proud to call him a client. He's one of the few artists, along with Mickey Hart of The Grateful Dead, who I worked with at Riker Disc, who would just send me the music and tell me to design what I hear. Um, that's a lot of trust. It might be even more stress, but, you know, some great covers came out, and I'm proud of them. And However, there's always a however, as we all know. And the music industry changed and collapsed, really, with the introduction of Napster, MP3s, and uh, the adoption of streaming as the major way to consume music. Needless to say, my job, packaging, took a huge hit. So I continue to this day to freelance uh, doing artwork, and I've worked with Carly Simon. I still work with Branford Marsalis quite a bit. And ironically, I've done a lot of vinyl reissues over the last year or so. All Music Books would rear its head, I think it was 2012, and it was one really, really cold and snowy Boston winter. Uh, I sat on my couch, and I fed the wood-burning stove, and I tried to figure out a way to start an online community where everyone who wants to can participate. You know, I found I read a lot of music books. I had some intense conversations with some of my equally psychotic music fiends or friends. And so I just wondered how I can make this all get started.
2: Oh, it sounds easy. Just like that, huh? Yeah,
1: well, not exactly. I thought it was. But, you know, what I learned is to scale it to what I wanted, it had to be built on a platform that I couldn't build. And it'd have to accommodate a huge interactive database. So what that meant to me after I found someone to freelance and build the site physically is uh, I got to sit on the couch and add each book, each book cover, each author, each publisher, each format, each page count, one by one. I'm pretty sure I put a permanent dent in the couch that winter, but we currently have over 10,000 books and around 750 reviews. And all of those books, if they're still in print, are available one click through Amazon.com as I threw my lot in with them. Wow.
2: So when did the Deep Dive podcast come about?
1: Well, I always wanted to involve the authors, you know, working in a production department. You're kind of behind the scenes, even if you do a magnificent cover, you know, you're rarely out front. And sometimes, you know, this is the author's life work. And there weren't that many platforms that allowed them to be the star of the show. You know, they'd get their books reviewed and all this, but rarely did I see interviews unless they're autobiographies and they were the musicians themselves that were talking about the book about themselves. But just for an author, there wasn't a lot of place for them to toot their own horn. So I started a five questions feature, which I just sent them five questions and they would answer them. And it was about their book. I also got some to participate in another feature called Authors Picks, where they'd make recommendations about their favorite music books. A lot of those would be by friends of theirs. But, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that if you're going to write a whole book about music, you're probably a music fan. Both of those features are still up on the all music book sites, by the way. As far as a podcast, I tried really, really early on. And I used a very early version of Skype and a screen recording program to try and do a video interview for the feature video section on the homepage. And Steve, as you know, that was a disaster. I found that video remnant in my files recently. And it was from a really, really good book called What You Want is in the Limo, On the Road with Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, and The Who in 1973, the year the 60s died and the modern rock star was born. Um, super catchy title just rolls off your tongue i know but it's a really good book and it's you know aside from the backstage stuff it's a it's a really good take on the business of rock and roll in its peak years and uh we have that here for our listeners so roll it steve
2: dude roll it
1: (laughs) it's an mp3 a couple of the major premises in your book is that 1973 is year zero for the modern rock star and rock and roll became big business that year.
3: Well, right, yeah. I mean, the, the, um, in the 1960s, there was a whole different sort of collectivism with, uh, with bands and audiences. It was one of the thing; the uh, everyone shared their experiences. There was less of a divisive line between audience and performer. And that attitude began to disappear in the early 1970s when the money started getting really big at these concerts. And you're suddenly playing in a 14,000-seat arena. And the uh, and the ticket prices are like at that time they're like seven dollars and fifty cents for a top. Nevertheless, their halls are clearing fifty or sixty thousand dollars a night. The bands in some cases are doing ten or fifteen thousand dollars a night. They put a price tag on something that used to be a little more collective. And so, that was the year seventy three was the year that a lot of um, a lot of contract writers started coming in. If you look at the Alice Cooper band writers that year, there was the the Budweiser for Alice that he drank constantly had to be in cans. Number one and number two brewed in the United States. And if they were playing Canada and somebody screwed up and you could look on the canvas of Brood Calgary, you know, it was like, we're not going on, as we right. get to do, you know, that kind of thing. So right. there was a level of indulgence that these guys were doing. It was, it, was, it was the beginning of a sort of rock aristocracy, which didn't really, it did exist in the 60s. It was a little less obvious, but at this point, it just became the operating status quo of rock and roll business um, as the 70s began.
1: Aside from these new economic stratifications, you also had the backstage pass, which was dictating social stratifications.
3: Precisely, yeah. It, it was like classes on an old steamship, like the old Cunard steamships crossed the Atlantic. There was tourist class, and there was first class, and there was you know, steerage, and the ship was configured in such a way to keep all those people in their place. You could, you, if you were in steerage, you could never get to first class, but the first class people could go anywhere they wanted on the ship rock and roll began to become that way at a a concert. First, it was just the backstage pass, which hadn't even been invented yet. People used to use those, hello, here I am, my name, things that would fall off. And a guy named Dave Otto in Cincinnati was just an entrepreneur, figured out a way to print on flexible rayon, uh, print colors. And so he printed that up, and he started selling those things to an instant pass through Cincinnati. It was a way to control access, which before hadn't really been needed before. And then just from that backstage pass, it didn't And then there became a whole strew of stratum of other passes. There was like after-party pass, stage pass, you know. So it just just went on and on and on. It it just got out of hand completely.
1: Did these kind of philosophies lead to any bad feelings from the fan base?
3: Any sort of comedy with the audience that the band members had. They liked their audiences. They liked for them to come to the halls. But at the same time, the mitigation that these people were being paid by the audience. There was something that had been then called festival seating. which sounds right. joyous and fun, but, and it's supposed to evoke Woodstock, but it's a really mean profit-generating thing. It's like take all the seats off the main floor of the hall, cram everybody in, you have to stand the entire performance, and it was dangerous. The, you know, the stage fronts of those big shows that year, there were fights, and and people were getting toppled and, and, and you know injured, and that finally culminated with the Who in I think '79 when they right. had a terrible. Stampede at their concert in the, I think it was in Cincinnati. Event. Twelve or thirteen or fourteen people were, were killed during that. But that the mitigation of that was being paid by the audiences who were paying the money to go to these things and buy the albums, and they were being treated rather badly. I think.
1: There was also an interesting dichotomy between some of these bands and some of the press. Alice Cooper and Led Zeppelin were hated by a lot of the press, and the bands hated them right back. Okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, the first Led Zeppelin was the first band to break without the music press. They did it. Peter Grant, their manager, very shrewdly did it, Broke them through the new FM radio format, FM rock radio format, which really hadn't existed a few years before that. So they went completely around the, the press, which is very powerful in the late sixties. Rolling Stones and those established critics wielded a lot of power, and Peter Grant took that bat out of their hands. That's one of the main reasons they hated it the band so much, was that they didn't need them. You, know, you didn't need to have Dave Marsh write a nice review of your album to, to get any cred. You could go right around them and you could do it through FM radio and you could also do it through these little halls that were coming around. There was the Tea Party in Boston, the Kinetic Circus in Chicago, though in Winterland in San Francisco. There was an alternative, it was like the DIY stuff in punk in the 90s existed back then too. There, there was a network was being built to distribute this music to people who really wanted it, who were not being served by the record companies or the music press at that time. And that was very shrewd part of those managers to, to access that. And it was it was pretty much unknown territory, but it totally worked.
1: And this network created a whole new dynamic, particularly with regards to artist management, where in many ways all you needed was some balls and a vision.
3: Yeah, it was wide open. I mean you just had you know, if you had, you know, some street smarts and a good line. You could keep track of money and keep track of figures, and you were physically intimidating. You'd go a long way. It was an era that is long gone and will never come back, but those guys were real Buccaneers in a lot of ways. I mean, Chuck Gordon, Alice Cooper's manager, I mean, he was a parole officer for one day. He quit, and he didn't know what he was doing, he was kind of busking around Hollywood. Jimi Hendrix said to him at the Landmark Hotel, was saying, why don't you guys just become managers and in the late 60s, and early 70s? I was like, why not? Right. There were, Chef Gordon, said me, he goes, that was the first time in 73 we had a little bit of power, a little bit of money, and he said there were absolutely no rules. And there weren't. They were, these guys were making it up as they went along, and they got it right for the most part. And keeping a band on the road back then was a really difficult task because there was the communication that was so primitive compared to now. There were no cell phones, there was no email. Right. Right. They had to take the money out of these halls and, paper, literally, in grocery bags, you know, because you, you couldn't deposit it anywhere. You had to take it to the next city in the plane to, to get, you know, there was, there was, everything was done in cash. Even guaranteeing a hotel with a credit card was not, novel back then. And you right. had to send teleks and telegrams and certified checks. I mean, Mary Beth Medley was one of the few women that was working. She was Peter Rudge's right-hand person uh, of the Hoop Tourism. Yeah. She said she would get out of Rand McNally Road Atlas and a bunch of 3 by 5 cards and start doing the tour that way. It was that primitive. So there was a real sense of, I think, of accomplishment that these people had. They didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't really know what they were in the middle of, but they were in the middle of a revolution, really.
1: 1973 as a whole was a huge year for music tours. Were these stratification things happening across the board? There was a little
3: bit of stratification. There was some crossover, though. There were plenty of Alice Cooper fans, and fans said, like Linda Bond said, or like some of the singer-songwriters, too. There was some eclecticism there, and there. That was the great thing about the early studies, that you could have so much stuff. It all was pretty much on the same level. I mean, it, it, you didn't necessarily have to be able to know Ron's but you were hearing your music on the same radio stations you were hearing Led Zeppelin's on. Right. It's worth noting that the House of the Holy, you had number one Led Zeppelin's album, 73. The element that knocked out of number one was an Elvis Presley record. So you even had guys from the 50s were still hanging in there in right. the early 70s. That's why it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write about it. It's, such an, it's got one leg in the 60s, one leg in the 70s, and there's all this, this commingling of culture and influence. Um, and the fact that you could hear such diverse Music on any given popular FM radio station or even an AM radio station, just the the, the weird stuff that would bump up against each other. And Frank Sinatra Jr., Nancy Sinatra song, also more or less at the same time. You know, a Yellow wrote down the old oak tree, you know, the (laughs) insufferable song, was being played in rotation with um, Led Zeppelin singles. That's gone. I mean, it's completely stratified now, not so stratified, it's balkanized into or ghettoized.
1: you mentioned tour riders, and everyone's probably familiar with Alice Cooper, or Led Zeppelins, or later on Van Halen's and Brown M&M's. But were the Paul Simons and the Linda Ronstadt's or the Chicago's of the world also including tour riders now?
3: Um, hard to say, because I don't, I don't know that. I would assume that sort of the zeitgeist of that, well, that time of the early 70s was... Definitely different than the late 60s. And it was cutting across all of those artists who were becoming kind of rock stars. They took the same sort of mentality. And uh, if you were touring, I mean, Crosby, Sills, and Nash in 75, I believe, toured in Brace of jets, And when they got to their hotels, they slept on Pillow shams, hands, sewn by the designs from Joni Mitchell. I mean, the tour barely, barely broke even, apparently, because of the on-the-road luxury it was so extensive.
1: What was your favorite story you learned in writing this book?
3: I think um, I, some of the stuff that came out of the Alice Cooper tour was just outrageously funny. I mean, there was that, that scene from almost, if you, you've ever seen the movie Almost Famous, there's a scene, famous scene where the, the, the fictitious fans sweep waters in an airplane that's in a storm. And these guys all think they're going to die, so they start blurting out confessions. One guy says, oh, I ran over a guy in Detroit one time. Well, that really happened, and it happened on this Alice Cooper tour. And They were flying into Minneapolis, and the engine of the plane went out. And Shep Gordon, uh, Alice Cooper's manager, later told me that, that Cameron Crowe, which at the time was a 16-year-old journalist writing for Rolling Stone covering the tour. That became the basis for that in the movie, apparently. Wow. But he was on the plane that day. It was um, Joe Gannon, one of the Alice Cooper tour guys, told me the story. He said, he said Alice leaned over to him and said, Hey, Joe, one engine just went out into smoking. <laughs> and then the pilot comes on, says, Well, we got a little problem. We're all in our configuration. We're just going to go for it. So these guys all think they're going to die. <laughs> And so they started doing the same things. They started blurting out these stories, and the last minute, everything they the plane lands, and everybody's happy. So it worked out okay.
2: But as the saying goes, you can't polish a turd. Can I say that on the air? I think so. You just did. No original questions were harmed in the recording of this track. So Skype, being one of the early formats of live video conferencing, was pretty much your only option in 2012 when this was done. I've been fighting mm-hmm. Skype alien noises ever since. So thanks for that, Stevo. <laughs> And, man, did that guy speak fast or what, the-
1: <laughs> You know, seeing that after so many years, and you saw the video, I listened to it a dozen times, and some of Michael's comments just fly past me. I, I can't get them. From the video sense, you know, he told me he was going to be in an office place, but it was worse than I imagined, just the distraction. You know, he's got earbuds in, and literally there's people walking behind him. And at one point, you know, he points to his earbuds and mouths, I'm on an interview. And it was uh, it, it was horrible. It was horrible, but you know, at least I tried. And um, this is way before podcasting was a thing. I had a couple of good friends of mine, music industry friends, who recommended I do a podcast, and that made sense to me. So there we go. Now, Steve, it's your turn to hit rewind on your history. Oh
2: man, was that too obvious? Anyway. It all began back in the dark ages, mixing bands in college on whatever pieces of gear we could scrounge up, usually including hi-fi equipment, which inevitably blew up. (laughs) As the 70s turned into the 80s, my younger brother Scott got a recording deal with Columbia Records, and I got my taste of the big time, opening for national acts regionally. I was able to leverage that and jump onto a tour bus for the next 30 years as a live sound engineer with some pretty amazing long-time clients, like 17 years with Melissa Etheridge and 8 years off and on, or on and off, with John Hyatt, to name a few. Besides supporting their own headlining world tours, both artists were invited on some pretty hefty opening act slots and festivals. Woodstock 94 with Melissa, the Eagles Hell Freezes Over Tour, Things like that. It's big time. It was a blast. And like you, Stephen, as your beautiful album art shrunk to the size of a postage stamp on iTunes, (laughs) audio evolved from warm-sounding English analog consoles the size of a large conference table to the ones and zeros of digital things that my kids could carry for me turning this curmudgeonly old sound guy into an instant dinosaur.
1: <laughs> Get off my lawn.
2: I spent a few years in the fast-paced world, staging corporate events and trade shows, and even a couple years doing production at the Berkeley College of Music. But that proved to be a little too much jazz for me. Then one day, my neighbor was walking his dog.
1: <laughs> I think that's me. Yes, yes. You, you were the first person I reached out to, even before the authors. I knew your history, which is extremely impressive, and your four houses down from me, which is also nice. But I also knew you always need to know what you don't know, and I am a moron when it comes to wires. I don't even know how to read. <laughs> oh, wow. Perfect team. So I did mention this to you first, and uh, off we went.
2: So we experimented with a few different mics, phones, software, kind of got it down. And put the first four episodes in the can, ready for release. The thing we really wanted to focus on was to make it sound conversational, rather than the straight Q&A thing.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. Learning on the run is a skill set, and hopefully most people do acquire it. We were told many things. We took a class, which is interesting. Interesting. And we were told that 20 to 25 minutes was an ideal conversation. We quickly realized we were just getting rolling by that point. You know, our first few are of that length. One of the things that we did well was to do four from the outset, just so it didn't look like we were going from week to week. We wanted it to be smart, fulfilling, you know, a really broad musical palette. We have everything on there in every genre except classical. We wanted to make it a place where you could learn something about music that maybe you didn't know. And uh, God knows I have, and I'm a bit of a music freak. The authors have all been amazing. Everything we really could have asked for.
2: Yeah, it's been really rewarding, actually, getting positive feedback from the authors on your style and your in-depth research. It's like you actually read the book. What a concept.
4: My name is Christopher McKittrick, and I am the author of Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones, and New York City. All music books featured me on the Deep Dive podcast in September 2019, a few weeks after the release of my book. Now, I've done a lot of podcast and radio interviews to promote my work, and what most impressed me about talking with Steve is how much he took that Deep Dive title literally. He demonstrated a thorough understanding of both my book and the history of the Rolling Stones in our interview. It made the interview easy, and more importantly, a lot of fun. As an author, I really appreciated speaking with someone who is just as passionate as I am about music. Being able to share such a great interview on social media and on my website certainly helped bring outstanding exposure to my book. I have another music book coming out later this year, and I will definitely be reaching out to Steve to see if he'll have me on the podcast again. Thanks, Steve.
1: Well, to be honest, so that mostly comes because I don't want to look like an ass. Seriously, I do read everything cover to cover on anybody we do, uh, and in my free time... I read music books. You know, it's interesting because a couple of these books were just totally new territory for me. You know, I read 300 pages about Alice in Chains, who I knew nothing about. I knew a song or two from the hit days, you know, just in passing. I knew the tragedies that they went through. You know, the author was up for an interview, so my job was to read the book. And uh, it was really, really good. You know, that's what I found most. Uh, Yacht rock, right? that's a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. That's a lot of music I grew up with, and you did probably too, that I'd maybe hope not to hear again, but the book was was really interesting. We had a conversation with uh, a young woman named Ada Wolin about the Shangri-Las that was just incredible. She's less than half my age, and we're talking about a record that came out when I was probably five years old. And it was just fascinating to hear her perspective. And I know them because of their hits. I didn't know any backstory. And she went and researched it. It was just so fascinating to hear how music kind of transcends generationally and that you can have a conversation like that. You know, hopefully it was rewarding for her, but I love that one. That was a great one.
2: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Do you have any favorites or especially memorable moments?
1: Well, they've all been memorable with you, Steve. Um, nah. You know, it gives us some time to shoot the shit and drink some bourbon. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Emily Lordy, who we interviewed for uh, one of my all-time favorite records, and that's Donnie Hathaway Live. It's in the 33 and 3rd series. And she was super, super good. There's a bit in the interview where we're talking about the call and response and the church's influence on those kinds of vocals. And Emily just breaks in and sings the men's, and then the woman's part in the song, The Ghetto. And it's so great. You want to talk about Joyous? And it was just so fun. And she's she of great doing it. and It always puts a smile on my face. That's good
3: stuff. And he makes these women, these singers in the crowd, friends with each other, Where He traditionally did say, okay, here's the part, you know, he had like this crowd call and response thing that he wanted to create with that, with live performances of the ghetto. And so he would say, here's ladies, like, this is what you sing. Talking about the ghetto. And then he was like, guys, you go, the ghetto, talking about the ghetto. And so he like kind of had them play off each other in that way.
1: We talked with uh, Sean Maloney recently about the Modern Lovers, which was a trip. That conversation was so free flowing from the get go that literally, if you recall, I looked over at you and we were rolling. And it's a great conversation, but I just tossed my notes up in the air because we're hitting uncharted territory. Here's a clip from that. Are you a native Bostonian? I grew up
5: way outside of Boston. I'm from North Reading, so I'm from like the, the uncool side of 128. <laughs>
1: Same as Jonathan in terms of the the world away from downtown Boston. I
5: don't know. It's one of those Massachusetts suburbs that just kind of continues the the kind of the vibe of the pilgrims. And it's just kind of like forceful squareness. (laughs) The kind of weird puritanical unhipness that we
2: were founded on. And what about that tiny Tim guy? He was really into it.
1: Yeah. So if you had told me, you know what? You're gonna read this 400 page book about Tiny Tim. I would have said you are fucking crazy. There's just no way that I'm gonna do that. And of course, I did. And it was another great book, you know As a kid, I'm sure you remember, but Tiny Tim was um, he was either on Johnny Carson or laughing. That's what I remember about Tiny Tim. You know, speaking to this guy, he was really into it posits tiny tim it's just this fountain of knowledge of old folk music
2: my opinion it should be regarded as one of the top albums of the 60s it should be right there with the white album and are you experienced and velvet underground and nico
1: that is high praise indeed so any do-overs any lessons learned? Maybe. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the big one is the length, you know, and I think that, I don't want to say it compromise anything because it's always learning, but one of the stories, and it did so well for us, I don't want to say it put us on the map, but it, it did really well for us, and we had a conversation with Galadriel Allman pretty early in, and she is Dwayne Allman's daughter, and she has this book. It's just a, a beautiful book. You know, she was only two when her dad died, so most of the book spends the time for her to reconcile that everyone thinks her dad is a legend, and that's barely who she knew. So, you know, it's a lifetime of trying to figure out who your father was and is, and he's gone. I wish we'd had more than the 20 to 25-minute illusion there. But,
2: but to break with convention, that's been our biggest downloaded episode, you know, 20 minutes, and it's getting piles of them.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, the strength and beauty of her story over the time on that, though. I, I think we could have gone twice that long, and we still would have. Had.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I could still be talking to her
1: now. On the other hand, you know, live and learn. We had a conversation with David Cantwell, who wrote a book on Merle Haggard. That was a gift because, you know, you're checking the levels, and he and I are just shooting the shit. And that was on the week that Ken Burns' PBS country music series premiered. And it was incredible. I remember looking over at you, and David's talking about it and giving his take on it. And he writes a lot. He writes for The New Yorker. He's done a few books. He's an academic. And you gave me a hand signal. I know we don't roll tape, but it was the circular motion that just keep rolling. And we ended up with you know a bonus episode of almost 40 minutes with a guy who knows everything about country music. So very unexpected. And uh, thanks, David, for the extra time. But that one... He just kind of wanders through country music, and it was completely extemporaneous, or no notes, you know, no guides, and uh, it's it's a really good one, you know. So totally agree with that one. It's fun sometimes to be surprised. What about you? What what's your beef?
2: Um. Well, you know, I wish there was a way to air quotes legally use the artist's music in our episodes. It would really illustrate the author's vision behind the book. The Spotify playlist thing was genius because now the artist actually gets their .0001 cent for every listen.
1: (laughs) I forget who I was talking to. I think it was Tara Martha who wrote the Ode to Billy Joe Bobby Gentry book. But she was talking about, she goes, you know, it should be mandatory when you're reading some of these music books to have a playlist that you can refer to. And, you know, I totally agree. Uh, we're working on something new. We'll get to that later. But I'd never really heard the artist or the the record. And I'm sitting there reading the book, and I'm putting the book down and going back to the playlist. So, you know, those are fun to make. And some of the uh, authors have have helped us out. Uh, I've reached out to them and said, you know, have a look at this. Am I missing anything that's critical? And you know, they've gotten involved to the extent that they want to. If you go to Spotify while you're reading the books, after you're reading the books today. Uh, and look us up, all music books. Uh, there are a lot of these companion playlists as well as some other playlists. You know, hopefully that can then help with with the fact that we can't illegally use music clips.
2: No such thing as the seven-second law, right. trust me. We've looked. We've looked. We've talked to lawyers,
1: But, you know, all in all, I, I think you'd agree. Um, it's all been, you know, pretty interesting and engaging. And, you know, one of the things that I've definitely noticed, I'm a, a bit of oh shit. See, what's the word I'm looking for? Snob. Not statistical. The analysis. No. Analytical. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, anyway. A snob. <laughs> yes. No. Um, but, no, the analytical software, especially for Podbean, who we use, is, is pretty good. You know, it's things that you can look at really quick and get a good picture. You know, I noticed with each new episode, our back catalog of Programs kind of grows exponentially with that release. So we put out a new one and, you know, the back ones all find another audience. So I think and I hope that means people are going back to listen to our older things and, and hopefully discovering some new music. You know, you mentioned we're approaching our one-year anniversary, and we had something planned, but we're going to keep it at arm length until we get back to normal, the stupid corona thing. Otherwise, we'd, well, we wouldn't be having a corona, but we'd be celebrating. And one thing I would ask our listeners, though, is if you'd please follow or subscribe to us on your favorite, you know, podcast outlet, it'd make a huge difference. Um Podcasting is a bit of a numbers game, and uh, if you're tuning in anyways, it would help us. The downloads are amazing, so thank you again for all of that. But uh, you know, the followers is something that, you know that that's some sort of marker, and uh, we could be doing better in that. Wait,
2: wait, wait, how about this? So we're chasing our next big plateau of five thousand downloads, and we just passed through forty six hundred this morning. I don't know if you saw that, but we did. So. Let's set a goal for the anniversary on May 5th of getting to 5,000 downloads. That is, are you ready? 05, 05, 5,000.
1: So looking forward a bit, uh, we hope to be back in the author and new book game in two weeks with an all-new episode. On April 14th. Wait, April 14th? April 14th. Damn, man. That's Beth's birthday.
2: I better not mess that one up this year again.
1: Well, uh, we'll have a fresh new interview about an artist and a record that I know very little about. Um, I mean, that sounds like a birthday present to me. That's one that came through on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. We were throwing it out to authors. We noticed a trend that a lot of these authors, they've written books and they've been published and they're out in stores which people can't get to, and their book tours, which is their only way to promote it, have all obviously been canceled. So we're pretty active on Twitter, especially, throwing that out and saying, hey, if your book tour got canceled, come to us. We do it remotely. We can be pretty nimble. And we got some people to join us. This one is, well, neo-soul hip-hop record. And we have another hip-hop book that looks fascinating beyond that. There's a book about 1968 and Van Morrison in Boston that really, really, really looks good. And uh, I haven't read it yet, so I've got a stack. And then there's also a book on one of the biggest producers of 70s rock and roll and, you know, classic rock and all that. That's coming as well. So that's sort of what's in the pipeline. I'm sure it's subject to change. And uh, if you are an author of a music book, recent or... Otherwise, you know, you can get in touch with us through our website, info at com, and we would love to set up an interview with you. So that's where we're at now. Anything else in closing, Mr. Folsom? I guess just thanks for keeping
2: two old guys from spending their leisure time sitting in soccer mom chairs at the end of our driveways yelling at the neighborhood kids.
1: All right, thanks for hanging in there with us. I was surprised to see how many of you read our little pause thing. We didn't know what the hell to do, but... You know, we didn't want to just freak out and set our hair on fire with everybody else and not say anything. Uh, A lot of y'all downloaded that, so that was interesting. So maybe you will listen. We welcome you, and thank you again for all of your support. So until next week when you will hear this drop. Nope, nope,
2: nope. Can't talk about next week when it's already next week. Right.
1: (laughs) So until the 14th with our next new interview, we will see you then. Thanks again. Oh, 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 one more thing part of our change for our second season we are once again using the fabulous frankie and the pool boys a uh, surf band from the bay area i've known the guitar player most of my life he's incredible and they're a great band and they let us use their music which uh, is very nice for them and i hope it exposes you to them so we're going to end our outro here with our new theme music for our season two thanks again for listening